Section 11 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 1, Part 1. Morning 1. The Death of Jean-Michel. Years have passed. Jean-Christophe is nearly eleven. His musical education is proceeding. He is learning harmony with Florian Holzer, the organist of St. Martin's, a friend of his grandfather's, a very learned man, who teaches him that the chords and series of chords that he most loves, and the harmonics which softly greet his heart and ear, those that he cannot hear without a little thrill running down his spine, are bad and forbidden. When he asks why, no reply is forthcoming, but that it is so. The rules forbid them. As he is naturally in revolt against discipline, he loves them only the more. His delight is to find examples of them in the great and admired musicians, and to take them to his grandfather or his master. His grandfather replies that in the great musicians they are admirable, and that Beethoven and Bach can take any liberty. His master, less conciliatory, is angry, and says acidly that the masters did better things. Jean-Christophe has a free pass for the concerts and the theatre. He has learned to play every instrument a little. He is already quite skilful with the violin, and his father procured him a seat in the orchestra. He acquitted himself so well there that after a few months' probation he was officially appointed second violin in the Hofmusikverein. He has begun to earn his living. Not too soon, either, for affairs at home have gone from bad to worse. Melchior's intemperance has swamped him, and his grandfather is growing old. Jean-Christophe has taken in the melancholy situation. He is already as grave and anxious as a man. He fulfills his task valiantly, though it does not interest him, and he is apt to fall asleep in the orchestra in the evenings, because it is late, and he is tired. The theatre no longer rouses in him the emotion it used to do when he was little. When he was little, four years ago, his greatest ambition had been to occupy the place that he now holds. But now he dislikes most of the music he is made to play. He dare not yet pronounce judgment upon it, but he does find it foolish. And if by chance they do play lovely things, he is displeased by the carelessness with which they are rendered, and his best-beloved works are made to appear like his neighbors and colleagues in the orchestra, who, as soon as the curtain has fallen, when they have done with blowing and scraping, mop their brows and smile and chatter quietly, as though they had just finished an hour's gymnastics. And he has been close to his former flame, the fair, barefooted singer. He meets her quite often during the entr'acte in the saloon. She knows that he was once in love with her, and she kisses him often. That gives him no pleasure. He is disgusted by her paint and scent and her fat arms and her greediness. He hates her now. The Grand Duke did not forget his pianist in ordinary. Not that the small pension, 
which was granted to him with this title was regularly paid it had to be asked for but from time to time jean christophe used to receive orders to go to the palace when there were distinguished guests or simply when their highnesses took it into their heads that they wanted to hear him it was almost always in the evening at the time when jean christophe wanted to be alone he had to leave everything and hurry off sometimes he was made to wait in the anteroom because dinner was not finished the servants accustomed to see him used to address him familiarly then he would be led into a great room full of mirrors and lights in which well-fed men and women used to stare at him with horrid curiosity he had to cross the waxed floor to kiss their highnesses hands and the more he grew the more awkward he became for he felt that he was in a ridiculous position and his pride used to suffer when it was all done he used to sit at the piano and have to play for these idiots he thought them idiots there were moments when their indifference so oppressed him as he played that he was often on the point of stopping in the middle of a piece there was no air about him he was near suffocation seemed losing his senses when he finished he was overwhelmed with congratulations and laden with compliments he was introduced all round he thought they looked at him like some strange animal in the prince's menagerie and that the words of praise were addressed rather to his master than to himself he thought himself broad low and he developed a morbid sensibility from which he suffered the more as he dared not show it he saw offence in the most simple actions if any one laughed in a corner of the room he imagined himself to be the cause of it and he knew not whether it were his manners or his clothes or his person or his hands or his feet that caused the laughter he was humiliated by everything he was humiliated if people did not talk to him humiliated if they did humiliated if they gave him sweets like a child humiliated especially when the grand duke as sometimes happened in princely fashion dismissed him by pressing a piece of money into his hand he was wretched at being poor and at being treated as a poor boy one evening as he was going home the money that he had received weighed so heavily upon him that he threw it through a cellar window and then immediately he would have done anything to get it back for at home there was a month's old account with the butcher to pay his relatives never suspected these injuries to his pride they were delighted at his favor with the prince poor louisa could conceive of nothing finer for her son than these evenings at the palace in splendid society as for melchior he used to brag of it continually to his boon fellows but jean christophe's grandfather was happier than any he pretended to be independent and democratic and to despise greatness but he had a simple admiration for money power honors social distinction and he took unbounded pride in seeing his grandson moving among those who had these things he delighted in them as though such glory was a reflection upon himself and in spite of all his efforts to appear calm and indifferent his face used to glow on the evenings when jean christophe went to the palace old jean michel used always to contrive to stay about the house on some pretext or another 
he used to await his grandson's return with childish impatience and when jean christophe came in he would begin at once with a careless air to ply him with seeming idle questions such as well did things go well to-night or he would make little hints like here's our jean christophe he can tell us some news or he would produce some ingenious compliment by way of flattery here's our young nobleman but jean christophe out of sorts and out of temper would reply with a curt good evening and go and sulk in a corner but the old man would persist and ply him with more direct questions to which the boy replied only yes or no then the others would join in and ask for details jean christophe would look more and more thunderous they had to drag the words from his lips until Jean-Michel would lose his temper and hurl insults at him. Then Jean-Christophe would reply with scant respect, and the end would be a rumpus. The old man would go out and slam the door. So Jean-Christophe spoiled the joy of these poor people, who had no inkling of the cause of his bad temper. It was not their fault if they had the souls of servants and never dreamed that it is possible to be otherwise." Jean-Christophe was turned into himself, and though he never judged his family, yet he felt a gulf between himself and them. No doubt he exaggerated what lay between them, and in spite of their different ways of thought, it is quite probable that they could have understood each other if he had been able to talk intimately to them. But it is known that nothing is more difficult than absolute intimacy between children and parents, even when there is much love between them, for on the one side respect discourages confidence, and on the other the idea, often erroneous, of the superiority of age and experience prevents them taking seriously enough the child's feelings, which are often just as interesting as those of grown-up persons, and almost always more sincere. But the people that John Christophe saw at home, and the conversation that he heard there, widened the distance between himself and his family. Melchior's friends used to frequent the house, mostly musicians of the orchestra, single men, and hard drinkers. They were not bad fellows, but vulgar. They made the house shake with their footsteps and their laughter. They loved music, but they spoke of it with a stupidity that was revolting. The coarse indiscretion of their enthusiasm wounded the boy's modesty of feeling. When they praised a work that he loved, it was as though they were insulting him personally. He would stiffen himself and grow pale, frozen, and pretend not to take any interest in music. He would have hated it had that been possible. Melchior used to say, The fellow has no heart. He feels nothing. I don't know where he gets it from. Sometimes they used to sing German four-part songs, four-footed as well, and these were all exactly like themselves slow-moving, solemn, and broad, fashioned of dull melodies. Then Jean-Christophe used to fly to the most distant room and hurl insults at the wall. His grandfather also had friends, the organist, the furniture dealer, the watchmaker, the contrabass, garrulous old men who used always to pass round the same jokes and plunge into interminable discussions on art, politics, or the family trees of the countryside, much less interested in the subjects of which they talked than happy to talk and to find an audience. As for Louisa, she used only to see some of her neighbors who brought her the gossip of the place 
and at rare intervals a kind lady who under pretext of taking an interest in her used to come and engage her services for a dinner party and pretend to watch over the religious education of the children but of all who came to the house none was more repugnant to jean christophe than his uncle theodore a stepson of his grandfather's a son by a former marriage of his grandmother clara jean michel's first wife he was a partner in a great commercial house which did business in africa and the far east he was the exact type of one of those germans of the new style whose affectation it is scoffingly to repudiate the old idealism of the race and intoxicated by conquest to maintain a cult of strength and success which shows that they are not accustomed to seeing them on their side but as it is difficult at once to change the age-old nature of a people the despised idealism sprang up again in him at every turn in language manners and moral habits and the quotations from goethe to fit the smallest incidents of domestic life for he was a singular compound of conscience and self-interest there was in him a curious effort to reconcile the honest principles of the old german bourgeoisie with the cynicism of these new commercial condottieri a compound which forever gave out a repulsive flavour of hypocrisy forever striving to make of german strength avarice and self-interest the symbols of all right justice and truth jean christophe's loyalty was deeply injured by all this he could not tell whether his uncle were right or no but he hated him and marked him down for an enemy his grandfather had no great love for him either and was in revolt against his theories but he was easily crushed in argument by theodore's fluency which was never hard put to it to turn into ridicule the old man's simple generosity in the end jean michel came to be ashamed of his own good-heartedness and by way of showing that he was not so much behind the times as they thought he used to try to talk like theodore but the words came hollow from his lips and he was ill at ease with them whatever he may have thought of him theodore did impress him he felt respect for such practical skill which he admired the more for knowing himself to be absolutely incapable of it he used to dream of putting one of his grandsons to similar work that was melchior's idea also he intended to make rodolphe follow in his uncle's footsteps and so the whole family set itself to flatter this rich relation of whom they expected help he seeing that he was necessary to them took advantage of it to cut a fine masterful figure he meddled in everything gave advice upon everything and made no attempt to conceal his contempt for art and artists rather he blazoned it abroad for the mere pleasure of humiliating his musicianly relations and he used to indulge in stupid jokes at their expense and the cowards used to laugh jean christophe especially was singled out as a butt for his uncle's jests he was not patient under them he would say nothing but he used to grind his teeth angrily and his uncle used to laugh at his speechless rage but one day when theodore went too far in his teasing jean christophe losing control of himself spat in his face it was a fearful affair the insult was so monstrous that his uncle was at first paralyzed by it 
Then words came back to him, and he broke out into a flood of abuse. Jean Christophe sat petrified by the enormity of the thing that he had done, and did not even feel the blows that rained down upon him. But when they tried to force him down on his knees before his uncle, he broke away, jostled his mother aside, and ran out of the house. He did not stop until he could breathe no more, and then he was right out in the country. He heard voices calling him, and he debated within himself whether he had not better throw himself into the river, since he could not do so with his enemy. He spent the night in the fields. At dawn he went and knocked at his grandfather's door. The old man had been so upset by Jean Christophe's disappearance, he had not slept for it, that he had not the heart to scold him. He took him home, and then nothing was said to him, because it was apparent that he was still in an excited condition, and they had to smooth him down, for he had to play at the palace that evening. But for several weeks Melchior continued to overwhelm him with his complaints, addressed to nobody in particular, about the trouble that a man takes to give an example of an irreproachable life and good manners to unworthy creatures who dishonor him. And when his uncle Theodore met him in the street, he turned his head and held his nose by way of showing his extreme disgust. Finding so little sympathy at home, Jean Christophe spent as little time there as possible. He chafed against the continual restraint which they strove to set upon him. There were too many things, too many people, that he had to respect, and he was never allowed to ask why, and Jean Christophe did not possess the bump of respect. The more they tried to discipline him and to turn him into an honest little German bourgeois, the more he felt the need of breaking free from it all. It would have been his pleasure, after the dull, tedious, formal performances which he had to attend in the orchestra or at the palace, to roll in the grass like a fowl, and to slide down the grassy slope on the seat of his new trousers, or to have a stone fight with the urchins of the neighborhood. It was not because he was afraid of scoldings and thwackings that he did not do these things more often, but because he had no playmates. He could not get on with other children. Even the little gutter snipes did not like playing with him, because he took every game too seriously and struck too lustily. He had grown used to being driven in on himself and to living apart from children of his own age. He was ashamed of not being clever at games and dared not take part in their sport, and he used to pretend to take no interest in it, although he was consumed by the desire to be asked to play with them. But they never said anything to him and then he would go away, hurt, but assuming indifference. He found consolation in wandering with Uncle Gottfried when he was in the neighborhood. He became more and more friendly with him, and sympathized with his independent temper. He understood so well now Gottfried's delight in tramping the roads without a tie in the world. Often they used to go out together in the evening into the country, straight on, aimlessly, and as Gottfried always forgot the time, they used to come back very late, and then were scolded. Gottfried knew that it was wrong, but Jean Christophe used to implore, and he could not himself resist the pleasure of it. About midnight he would stand in front of the house and whistle an agreed signal. Jean Christophe would be in his bed, fully dressed. He would slip out with his shoes in his hand, and holding his breath, creep with all the artful skill of a savage to the kitchen window 
which opened on to the road. He would climb onto the table. Gottfried would take him on his shoulders, and then off they would go, happy as truants. Sometimes they would go and seek out Jeremy the fisherman, a friend of Gottfried's, and then they would slip out in his boat under the moon. The water dropping from the oars gave out little arpeggios, then chromatic scales. A milky vapor hung tremulous over the surface of the waters. The stars quivered. The cocks called to each other from either bank, and sometimes in the depths of the sky they heard the trilling of larks ascending from earth, deceived by the light of the moon. They were silent. Gottfried hummed a tune. Jeremy told strange tales of the lives of the beasts, tales that gained in mystery from the curt and enigmatic manner of their telling. The moon hid herself behind the woods. They skirted the black mass of the hills. The darkness of the water and the sky mingled. There was never a ripple on the water. Sounds died down. The boat glided through the night. Was she gliding? Was she moving? Was she still? The reeds parted with a sound like the rustling of silk. The boat grounded noiselessly. They climbed out on to the bank and returned on foot. They would not return until dawn. They followed the river bank. Clouds of silver ablets, green as ears of corn or blue as jewels, teemed in the first light of day. They swarmed like the serpents of Medusa's head and flung themselves greedily at the bread thrown to them. They plunged for it as it sank and turned in spirals and then darted away in a flash like a ray of light. The river took on rosy and purple hues of reflection. The birds woke one after another. The truants hurried back. Just as carefully as when they had set out, they returned to the room with its thick atmosphere, and Jean Christophe, worn out, fell into bed and slept at once, with his body sweet-smelling with the smell of the fields. All was well, and nothing would have been known but that one day Ernest, his younger brother, betrayed Jean Christophe's midnight sallies. From that moment they were forbidden, and he was watched, but he contrived to escape and he preferred the society of the little peddler and his friends to any other. His family was scandalized. Melchior said that he had the tastes of a laborer. Old Jean-Michel was jealous of Jean-Christophe's affection for Gottfried, and used to lecture him about lowering himself so far as to like such vulgar company when he had the honor of mixing with the best people and of being the servant of princes. It was considered that Jean Christophe was lacking in dignity and self-respect. In spite of the penury which increased with Melchior's intemperance and folly, life was tolerable as long as Jean Michel was there. He was the only creature who had any influence over Melchior, and who could hold him back to a certain extent from his vice. The esteem in which he was generally held did serve to pass over the drunkard's freaks, and he used constantly to come to the aid of the household with money. Besides the modest pension which he enjoyed as retired Kappelmeister, he was still able to earn small sums by giving lessons and tuning pianos. He gave most of it to his daughter-in-law, for he perceived her difficulties, though she strove to hide them from him.
Louisa hated the idea that he was denying himself for them, and it was all the more to the old man's credit in that he had always been accustomed to a large way of living and had great needs to satisfy. Sometimes even his ordinary sacrifices were not sufficient, and to meet some urgent debt Jean-Michel would have secretly to sell a piece of furniture or books or some relic that he set store by. Melchior knew that his father made presents to Louisa that were concealed from himself, and very often he would lay hands on them, in spite of protest. But when this came to the old man's ears, not from Louisa, who said nothing of her troubles to him, but from one of his grandchildren, he would fly into a terrible passion, and there were frightful scenes between the two men. They were both extraordinarily violent, and they would come to round oaths and threats, almost it seemed as though they would come to blows. But even in his most angry passion, respect would hold Melchior in check, and however drunk he might be, in the end he would bow his head to the torrent of insults and humiliating reproach which his father poured out upon him. But for that he did not cease to watch for the first opportunity of breaking out again, and with his thoughts on the future, Jean-Michel would be filled with melancholy and anxious fears. "'My poor children,' he used to say to Louisa, "'what will become of you when I am no longer here?' "'Fortunately,' he would add, fondling Jean-Christophe, "'I can go on until this fellow pulls you out of the mire.' But he was out in his reckoning. He was at the end of his road. No one would have suspected it. He was surprisingly strong. He was past eighty. He had a full head of hair, a white mane, still grey in patches, and in his thick beard were still black hairs. He had only about ten teeth left, but with these he could chew lustily. It was a pleasure to see him at table. He had a hearty appetite, and though he reproached Melchior for drinking, he always emptied his bottle himself. He had a preference for white moselle. For the rest, wine, beer, cider, he could do justice to all the good things that the Lord hath made. He was not so foolish as to lose his reason in his cups, and he kept to his allowance. It is true that it was a plentiful allowance, and that a feebler intelligence must have been made drunk by it. He was strong of foot and eye, and indefatigably active. He got up at six, and performed his ablutions scrupulously, for he cared for his appearance and respected his person. He lived alone in his house, of which he was sole occupant, and never let his daughter-in-law meddle with his affairs. He cleaned out his room, made his own coffee, sewed on his buttons, nailed and glued and altered, and going to and fro and up and down stairs in his shirt-sleeves, he never stopped singing in a sounding bass, which he loved to let ring out as he accompanied himself with operatic gestures. And then he used to go out in all weathers. He went about his business, omitting none, but he was not often punctual. He was to be seen at every street-corner arguing with some acquaintance, or joking with some woman whose face he had remembered, for he loved pretty women and old friends. And so he was always late, and never knew the time. But he never let the dinner hour slip by. He dined wherever he might be, 
inviting himself, and he would not go home until late, after nightfall, after a visit to his grandchildren. Then he would go to bed, and before he went to sleep, read a page of his old Bible, and during the night, for he never slept for more than an hour or two together, he would get up to take down one of his old books, bought second-hand, history, theology, belles-lettres, or science. He used to read at random a few pages, which interested and bored him, and he did not rightly understand them, though he did not skip a word until sleep came to him again. On Sunday he would go to church, walk with the children, and play bowls. He had never been ill, except for a little gout in his toes, which used to make him swear at night while he was reading his Bible. It seemed as though he might live to be a hundred, and he himself could see no reason why he should not live longer. When people said that he would die a centenarian, he used to think, like another illustrious old man, that no limit can be appointed to the goodness of providence. The only sign that he was growing old was that he was more easily brought to tears, and was becoming every day more irritable. The smallest impatience with him could throw him into a violent fury. His red face and short neck would grow redder than ever. He would stutter angrily, and have to stop, choking. The family doctor, an old friend, had warned him to take care and to moderate both his anger and his appetite. But with an old man's obstinacy he plunged into acts of still greater recklessness out of bravado, and he laughed at medicine and doctors. He pretended to despise death, and did not mince his language when he declared that he was not afraid of it. End of section 11